Independence, Love, Social Convention, Gender Roles, and Religion. Charlotte Bronte's most famous novel challenges ideas on all these topics, and we are here to discuss it. I'm Charlene. And I'm Mike. And this is Jane Eyre Files. Chapter 2. I Resisted All the Way. Hello, husband. Hello, underhand little thing. Oh. <laughs> Uh, just to, just for the listener, Mike is uh, picking quotes from the novel to call me, and I don't know what he's going to say, so I don't know uh, how to feel about this Chapter quote. two <laughs> is not, not good for... For, for uh, little Jane? For, no, well, chapter two is not good for funny quotes oh. that are relating to a character. Yes. Madame Mope was fantastic for chapter one. I right. like that one. That's gonna, I want to bring that up again in case there's another chapter which doesn't have some sort of nickname mm-hmm. that I can apply to you. Oh, I see. I, was, I thought you were going to start calling me Madame Mope when I'm moping about the house. I will. <laughs> that's that's going to be a given from now on. Oh, okay. Before we get underway, I just wanted to mention that I wanted to add audio clips to this podcast series to kind of illustrate different points of the of the book. And I went through a few options of like what audio to add. And I ended up going with my favorite adaptation, which is a 1973 BBC miniseries production with uh, Sorica Cusack and Michael Jaston. I don't think it's a well-known adaptation, but I think it's the best. And I feel like you really enjoyed it. Yes. I mean, you showed me all the two dozen adaptations mm-hmm. of Jane Eyre. And that one, it was, it's thorough. It's more or less unabridged. I think it's, yeah, it's very it's thorough. It's pretty like complete. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I will tell people that we did watch it all in one day. <laughs> it's I think five we, hours, yes. Yeah, I think we took a nap yeah. between a couple of hours, stopped and took a dinner mm-hmm. break. Because I think it's broken up into like four parts, right? Five four, episodes. Five yeah. episodes. Okay, yeah. So that made it a little bit easier. But yeah, it, it is the best. And it features, again, you know, one of the better Rochesters in Michael Jason. <laughs> and, you know, Circa Cusack is a really good Jane. And, all, and like even all the supporting roles are, are, are done really well. They They kind of... They seem to be what I picture when I was reading the novel. Yes, that's something that really struck me when I was watching it, is that I feel like, especially Michael Jason, really brought to life the Rochester that was in my head when I first read the book. So hopefully if anybody out there hasn't seen it, you can find a copy and enjoy. And now it's great that we get to call Michael Jason our friend. Yeah, I guess that's another story to share about how (laughs) I met Michael Jason, but we'll save that for another time. For now, let's get into our chapter summary. Chapter two, this is again from the Spark Notes website. Spark Notes! <laughs> two servants, Miss Abbott and Bessie Lee, escort Jane to the Red Room, and Jane resists them with all of her might. Once locked in the room, Jane catches a glimpse of her ghastly figure in the mirror, and, shocked by her meager presence, she begins to reflect on the events that have led her to such a state. She remembers her kind Uncle Reed bringing her to Gateshead after her parents' death, and she recalls his dying command that his wife promised to raise Jane as one of her own. Suddenly, Jane is struck with the impression that her Uncle Reed's ghost is in the room, and she imagines that he has come to take revenge on his wife for breaking her promise. Jane cries out in terror, but her aunt believes that she is just trying to escape her punishment, and she ignores her pleas. Jane faints in exhaustion and fear. 
So, in this chapter, we get pretty much all the backstory of Jane and her parents and why she's at Gateshead, who Mrs. Reed is. As you mentioned in the previous episode, we have a little bit of an exposition dump with John Reed, but now we have a much bigger one as Jane gets introspective in the Red Room. You read more than I do. I think we established that in previous episodes. And I know, you know, we talked about it on the last episode. Chapter one is very short. Yes. And I don't, I don't read enough to know, do authors try to put all the exposition in the first chapter? Are the first chapters a little bit longer so that they can do that? Or do they do a better job of trying to spread it out more? I feel like that it's more common to try to spread it out. I think it's a fault of a book if it's all in the beginning and it's kind of dumped on the, on the reader mm-hmm. quickly. So, yeah, I think this is, this is probably pretty normal. Yeah, I mean, I compare it like I've mentioned before. I, I'm more, I, I'm more cinematic in my mm-hmm. in my in my visions of, of of art and stuff. And so I think about like, yeah, you usually don't get a lot of the exposition in a movie in the first five minutes. Right. It's usually spread over the first act, which might be about a half an hour. So in this case, in a book, it would be the first you know hundred pages or so, right? Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was like we said, we talked about it on the last episode. It was interesting that so much of the exposition of Jane is told through John Reed insulting her. Yes. And that's all we know. Oh, she's she's only brought here. She's not welcome and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And so in chapter two, yeah, we get a continuation of that exposition. It's it's a I put in my notes that it's a companion piece to chapter one. Now, yes. I assume that's that's something that happens a lot in books. You know, chapter two should be a companion to chapter one, but it's not <laughs> such a specific delineation. Like the, chapter one ends with her being taken to the red room and mm-hmm. chapter two begins with her being pretty much i don't know if she's even in the room yet right she's still being brought she's over brought there in, yeah. so it's almost like it's pretty much the same chapter like what why even split them up at, at a certain oh, point well, right that's interesting i mean it's it's kind of marking that jane is becoming rebellious so that's a big moment for her maybe that's why you just ended on that i also think it's interesting because chapter one you know with john reed mentioning these things probably the reader has some questions of like oh what does that mean you know what is who is Mrs. Reed to Jane then, and why is she a dependent? So then chapter two gets to answer all your questions, all your burning questions as a reader mm-hmm. of what is happening with Jane and who she is. Yeah, and now you get and you get Jane's perspective, which is what I liked. Mm-hmm. You know, because obviously John Reed's going to have his own ideas about why she's here and why she yes. shouldn't be there. And whereas now, you know, chapter two is almost... The, virtually just an inner monologue, which mm-hmm. I guess happens a lot in books that are yes. told from the first person perspective, mm-hmm. right? And so you put her in a silent room where there's no one else to talk to her, and now she gets to tell the reader, okay, here's here's why I'm here, yeah. here's where I'm at. But she doesn't just, just lay it out in bullet points. Okay, then this happened, then this happened, then mm-hmm. this happened. It's more about... The we're starting we're going to start to see the elements of the supernatural like mm-hmm. we said that she thinks there's a ghost in the room mm-hmm. and so she ta- she's dealing with fear but then she's also kind of talking about this is specifically why I'm here because my old uncle who who I liked but who could not hear anymore he's gonna, he he gave it he told his wife to take care of me mm-hmm. and so now we it's, it's it's all those questions you may have had from the first chapter. Yes. You find yourself going, oh, okay, that makes a little bit more of sense because I don't know, is is Mr. Reed brought up in the first chapter? I know we just read it, but I'm like, I don't <laughs> remember it unless Mrs. Reed mentioned it in passing or... 
I don't think so. But then obviously there's a Mrs. Reed. So maybe the reader's like, well, where's Mr. Reed? So then that you get that yeah. information. And there's children. So you mm-hmm. don't think, yeah. of, you know, single mothers <laughs> in Victorian era England in the mid 19th yes. century probably was frowned upon. So there must be, you know. A reason why. Yeah. Yeah. And they also, I guess, made a lot of the men die young back then too, unfortunately, right? So yes, that was yes. that was the case. But yeah, so like I said, it's it's you know not to get too cinematic, but I was joke. Charlene and I are both huge fans of the James Bond franchise, mm-hmm. and I like how those movies are such standalone pieces. You know, it's easy to to change the actors. You know, Charlene prefers Roger Moore. I prefer Sean Connery. <laughs> you know, um, the Pierce Brosnan movies are fun. The Daniel Craig ones have, have been pretty good too, but. You know, when Daniel Craig took over the role, his first movie was Casino Royale. His second movie is Quantum of Solace. It's the first time that we really saw like a sequel. Like, I see. Yes. Chapter, uh, you know, Casino Royale is like chapter one of the, like the Daniel Craig story. Yeah, like it ends with him. He's leaving to go someplace. And then I think in, in Quantum of Solace begins with him arriving mm-hmm. at that place that he came mm-hmm. to. Right. So it's like it was a little bit jarring for someone like me. I don't know if it was for you to watch. 20 years or have been watching these movies for 20 years and all of a sudden you're like I'm not used to them picking up where the previous one left off and so this was like I said literally she's like take them to the red room and then it picks right up like I'm guessing perhaps and I'm going to answer my own question Mm -hmm. this idea of why wasn't it all just one big chapter and I think maybe it's because of the whole inner monologue Mm -hmm. because in the first chapter we get Jane having conversations with her aunt with her with her cousins I guess they're cousins right yeah and then we get all the exposition from John and now it's like okay now this is my turn to tell my story to Mm -hmm. you so you don't have to hear it from this pissant as we called him in the first chapter And so it's like, okay, we'll make it a separate chapter mm-hmm. because it's my introspective moment for me to tell you why I'm here and maybe draw some sympathy mm-hmm. because I just got picked on in the first chapter and now you can relate. Yes. And I feel like the second chapter is interesting because it introduces an element, I think you mentioned before, the supernatural, which brings us to a genre that this book is a part of, as, which is the gothic literature genre. And I was wondering... For you, I know you've seen a lot of films that maybe have been termed gothic. Mm-hmm. What what does gothic film or literature as genre mean to you? Well, yeah, it's funny. I, I know we had talked about this off the air, and that's a term that I think just gets thrown around so much. It has a lot of meanings. Yeah, yeah, you hear it a lot, and then but yet, is there something precise? You know, we talked a bit about we talked about movies earlier. You know, when someone says film noir. Mm-hmm. You know what that looks like. Black and white, harsh shadows, mm-hmm. usually has like a detective or something. You know, there's certain elements of film genres. You're more literary, but it seems like the literary genres are just so much more all-encompassing, right? When someone they, says fantasy. Yes. Right? I mean, you're going to get specific. What about, like, we talked about it, I think, on the last episode, YA. Mm-hmm. Isn't young adult, just that, does that encompass a lot? Because you could have YA fantasy, YA That's romance. True. As a genre, it's, it's more just an age group. Or it's like a demographic where you have certain things allowed. So, like, you don't have a lot of, you know, uh, sex or horror or something like that. And it's it's more geared towards the mindset of a younger adult. But then why is there a young adult section at Burnt and Noble? Isn't it usually like it has... Well, like, there's like a children's section. Well, but there's like the, you know, I feel like there's a YA section at Barnes & Noble. Then I, get, I guess it goes into subgenres, doesn't it? Yes. Isn't there a YA romance and YA fantasy? Yeah. Isn't there, isn't there a section at Barnes & Noble that's like, uh, not werewolf fantasy, but it's like... 
Like uh, very specifics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where it's like, okay, Twilight created this this section at, at Barnes and Noble. Sure. Where yeah. it was like it was like yeah, supernatural romance or something like <laughs> yes. that. Yeah. But yeah. So to go back to Gothic, like it's something that I've heard all my life. You hear it related to movies, and yet I really don't know. You know, right. we joking, we, we joke about it, but like, I think I put in my notes that I have this image in my head of like book covers mm-hmm. featuring women in like long flowing gowns sure. running from large old houses, <laughs> yes. you know, that's when you, when the, the, the term Gothic just gets thrown around for anything that is mm-hmm. like considered creepy or, but also like, it's never, it's never modern. Sure. You know, and I think you've got it in, it's in the notes. a little old-fashioned, I think. Yeah, and I think you've got it in your notes that isn't Gothic an architecture? Yes, it is. So I, I was wondering, there was a time when I was interested in the origins of Gothic literature. So I saw some reference to the idea that maybe these homes and these stories are sort of Gothic architecture. And that's why it's called Gothic literature, which I'm not sure how true that is. But makes makes some sense to me because I feel like that that the idea of a big forbidding house is kind of an element you see a lot in Gothic stories, mm-hmm. and I feel like I gravitate a lot towards those kinds of stories. I like stories about big forbidding houses and sort of an innocent woman having to deal with the intrigues or danger that's in that house. Mm-hmm. So stories like uh, Rebecca, which is also inspired by Jane Eyre, so Gothic stories appeal to me. And perhaps stemming from the fact that I love Jane Eyre so much, and Jane Eyre has a lot of these gothic elements, the supernatural being one of them. You have that virginal heroine. Uh, you have ghosts, mystery, madness, secrets. Those are sorts of things that come up a lot in gothic stories. And it melds sort of the fantastical with the realistic, which is something that in Jane Eyre, in this chapter, we get that realism because Jane is grounded in her in her feelings, her fears, her anxieties, but there's a, there now we're just getting the introduction of a possible ghost and that's something that sets up maybe in in later chapters other elements of of the supernatural which would feel out of place in a book that was supposed to be realistic. Charlotte Bronte is setting up to know this is going to be a realistic story. But it will have some supernatural elements. And that's what makes it gothic, right? Is that I believe, it, yeah. yeah. I think that really lends itself to the gothic genre. Because this is, this is all new to me because I feel like, and you could, you could attest more to this having read more books than I do, the idea of a gothic, you know, having subgenres, again, mm-hmm. gothic romance. But yet, when I think of gothic, a lot of times the first thing that comes to mind is horror. Sure. You know, I think of, I, 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 we go back to the films. I think of Vincent Price mm-hmm. in a big old spooky house. Mm-hmm. I think of, you know, yes. Any, a lot of movies from the 60s, low budget, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, yeah. a lot of those hammer horror films. I feel you like know. gothic stories can often swing more towards horror or romance. Like one of the like original gothic stories is Dracula. And that's mm. obviously has more horror elements to it than romance elements. But there is some romance elements to it. And in the movies, I think, I don't know if you've seen the the recent uh, film. I can't remember when it came out, actually. It was Crimson Peak. I heard of that one, yeah. And that was just total homage to gothic stories. And it has a little bit of romance, but then a great big horror section. So it was, it was but it was a really good film. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and that's what makes gothic so unique because of the fact that you're not, not supposed to have horror and romance in the same story. 
Yeah, it's such an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, and that's why, like I said, I, when you when you gave me this book to read, I feel like I had maybe I heard the term gothic romance mm-hmm. at some point. I did not go into it thinking that it was going to be too horror based or too maybe maybe a little bit of supernatural. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when you you asked me again earlier what I thought when I think of gothic as a literally as a literature genre. And I think about yeah, there's got to be some element of supernatural. But at the same time, it's like it's not necessarily dominant or overpowering. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just enough to put the reader on edge. And yeah. we're gonna get it with Jane Eyre as we move forward. Where it's like, okay, something is not quite right at mm-hmm. this house. Yes. And whether it be the house she's living in now or the house where she's going to be living in in a few years. <laughs> in all where, these houses that she's in. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> the common theme is, is Jane. So yes. you're like, what's going on? Like, why is there something a little bit off? And I think maybe that's what, does that make it gothic? That mm-hmm. it's, it's, there's the romantic elements. It's not straight up horror, mm-hmm. but there's something... Like I said, is it a ghost? Is it not a ghost? It's enough to keep you make the reader uneasy, but also put them on the edge of their seat as they're, it makes it draws them in, and they're going to continue reading. Yes. And that actually leads me to a question that I had for you, which was, do you think that the, the story of Jane Eyre could stand on its own without these gothic elements? You know, like it's this sweeping romance that draws you in. It could be, dare I say it? Jane Austen, you know. No, you dare not say that. <laughs> you know, that it draws you in, but it has that extra it has this extra level of suspense and wonder that 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 makes it, you know, does that make it that much more memorable? Like would it would this been okay if it was just a straight romance story without these supernatural gothic elements? I feel like it's it loses a little bit of the interest perhaps if you have it just there's no mystery, are you saying? Without so there's no what's going secrets. on. In, what's going on in the house? We, yeah. it, it doesn't matter. It's just I'm a governess and I'm falling for this big, this stuffy landowner that I think likes me, but he's not going to tell me because he's tight, you know, stiff upper lip. He's Mister Darcy. <laughs> Here I go again. Sorry, it's the you know. Um, well, the, the intrigue you know should come from somewhere obviously pride and prejudice has intrigue in the form of mr wickham and how he takes away lydia and in the form of mr darcy and his actual true personality which we don't know whereas with mr rochester i feel like his mystery is a lot more interesting because it's sinister and jane is is confused and the reader is confused whereas i think in pride and prejudice it's a lot more clear to probably the reader that Mr. Darcy is a good man or he has potential as a suitor that we don't really don't really we're more invested in how they're going to get together and that's basically it Mm -hmm. so that in Jane Eyre when you get to certain elements of their relationship and the romance you're not sure exactly what's going to happen and maybe they do love each other, but they're not going to be able to get together for whatever reason. Yeah. No, I'm just I'm just curious because I feel like those those supernatural gothic elements are what kept me mm-hmm. interested, you know, at first. Because mm-hmm. I get I, I said I wanted to read Jane Eyre because I know how much it meant to you, mm-hmm. so I was always going to do that. Yes. But if you had said, "Hey, Mike, my favorite novel is, is Pride and Prejudice. Would you read this?" I wonder if that might have been a little bit more of a chore, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I, Charlene did show me the the wonderful adaptation the BBC did with Colin, Colin Firth, Firth yes, you know, I and that was that. good. Mm-hmm. I, I was I liked it more than I thought I was going to like it. Oh, yes, you know. And I want to say, what? How do you know, top of your head, uh, how much earlier Pride and Prejudice was written before Jane Eyre? Was it? 
I want to say maybe 30, 35 years. Okay. Yeah, and maybe that's what I'm guessing. I'm going to take a wild guess and say that Charlotte Bronte probably read it. Yes, actually, she has a quote about it. I will pull that up right now. Charlotte Bronte wrote to a critic, G.H. Uh, Luz, saying, I have not seen Pride and Prejudice till I read that sentence of yours, and then I got the book and studied it. And what did I find? An accurate, daguerreotyped portrait of a commonplace face, a carefully fenced, highly cultivated garden with neat borders and delicate flowers, but no glance of a bright, vivid physiognomy, no open country, no fresh air, no blue hill, no bonny beck. I should hardly like to live with her ladies and gentlemen in their elegant but confined houses. So she's a little bit critical of the lack of drama, I think, in Jane Austen's works, which is fair enough. Jane Eyre has its fair share of drama. (laughs) Like I said, I I think I'm glad that this was your favorite book and not Pride and Prejudice. Oh, okay. I mean, I still would have read it. I still would have probably enjoyed it. You haven't read Pride and Prejudice. You might read it and think, oh, this is kind of a... She has a... Jane Austen has a very interesting cynical humor to her that i think is entertaining yeah i mean i did see the 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 film version from 15 years ago with kira knightley and judy oh, and i don't remember uh, i don't remember much about one. it so yeah. it's so i but then but like i said the one with colin firth was was a lot better but anyway we're, this is not a jane austen podcast no it's I'm, not I, and i'm sorry i know how much that that that, that riles your bones when i bring when jane austen gets more attention than the brontes when people confuse jane austen and jane Eyre. yeah <laughs> So something in this chapter that struck me, I think, was that Jane's anger at the injustice of her situation feels so strong. And I think it's partly because she's a child and that feeling of injustice. I feel like when I was a child, that idea of, oh, this is not fair, really rankled with me. And I like that Charlotte Bronte brings that to young Jane, where adult Jane can be a little more forgiving and young Jane is not. So I thought, what did you, did you feel that, that element stuck out with you? Well, I mean, it's something that we said was brought up in the first chapter or at least kind of talked around in the first chapter. And we see it more again, this is her inner monologue. This is her having kind of giving the reader her side of the story. Like, I wonder if it's, is she acting out, you know, because yes, it, it doesn't seem fair. There's injustice, but I also wonder, like she's she's been a, she almost does she feel abandoned, you oh. know, and that no one is no one's helping her. That she's stuck with this Reed family, mm-hmm. even though you know she doesn't want to be here. Mm-hmm. But and then the fact that you know, like that she has her own disappointment in that, you know, Mister Reed wasn't alive to see this, wasn't alive to see her being mistreated. Mm-hmm. You know, which winds up having her conjure up this spirit from beyond the mortal realm, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think, yeah, like I think you mentioned it before that sometimes children have always, that's that's the easy retort when they don't get something they like. This isn't fair. Right. This isn't fair. And to some extent, you know, maybe they are right. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you've got, you've got kids who have siblings, you have, you have brother and yeah. sister, I have a sister. I feel like when I was a child, you know, some, if one of us, I have two siblings, if one of us did something that we all got punished and that was not fair. I didn't like that at all. I didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sometimes reminded of that feeling when I read Jane Eyre, that, that first yeah. couple chapters of how, I, I hope that's, that's not uh an issue that I haven't dealt with, but <laughs> did you ever get in? Did you ever get in trouble for something that your siblings did? Like the idea of you know getting. I I always joke about it. I love my sister to death, but mm-hmm. when we were growing up, you know she's 
six years older than me, she used to pick on me and oh. she used to boss me around whenever my parents weren't around and, and she had control in the house. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't to the level of John Reed, but I oh, think that's goodness. something, I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to when they read a book is that they've had an older sibling mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, it, I feel like that you, we maybe it's high school, college age when you start to really, really care more about your siblings because when they're young there's a little bit of rivalry probably right sometimes they have a little bit of annoyance at them sometimes <laughs> yeah and this idea of fairness is something that everybody can relate to and mm-hmm. I, you know i feel bad that jane has to go through this you know you're hoping that's going to make her stronger but like you said there the injustice continues and we've already talked about it in the last episode about this being a patriarchal society so mm-hmm. she's got that going against her yes. and she's been orphaned and the people who are taking care of her don't seem to care for her and yes. that's making it even even worse to where it's like in into the red room and and you get locked up yeah into the red room <laughs> and if only you were one of us right kind of thing yes. so yeah Yes, yeah, so that takes us to the Red Room, which is such a, a big figure in this novel, I feel like, especially in later an- analysis and interpretations where people have a lot of ideas about what the Red Room means and the idea that Jane is being locked up in in a world where she is also constricted by her gender, her class, and how that figures into her story arc because she needs to break free of these things. And in the end, when she does, that she's happy. So she's kind of like a bird in a cage. Yes, yeah, that that's a a good symbolism that comes up, and and I feel like it also prefigures other women locked up in places that we might see in in the later part of the book. Ooh, spoiler! spoiler. <laughs> well, that's the gothic. It's so gothic. Yes. This woman needs to get out of the house in her long flowing gown and and run. (laughs) And run away. (laughs) And run away. And then we get those elements. But, um, well, why is the room red, though? Why, could, is, good, is, is, that, yeah. is that something that happened in a lot of these old houses back in oh. the 19th century where they, I, I they would choose a one color? color. <laughs> or not, not, even, not even red, but they would just be like, okay, we're going to make this room just completely green. Or this uh, room, you know, some sort of design motif. You know, and I, I'm, I'm sad that I can't, I can't speak to that. I really don't know. On one of my trips to England, I visited Buckingham Palace. They did the tours there. And there are rooms that are colored, like their blue room or white room or something. And that maybe does speak to the idea that they like to have singular colored rooms. <laughs> well, but then why do you think Charlotte Bronte chose red? I think that is something else that's been up for interpretation on whether that means blood or anger or the womb. Which, it, it, it does seem a little bit of a stretch to me. I just wonder, oh, Charlotte Bronte just picked red for no reason. But... Uh-huh. Well, but red is a passionate color. And I always yes. mentioned before that, like, I think that's one of Jane's signature qualities is that she's she has passion. Yes. And I wonder if, if, if that's what Kerr Bell was putting into this book as she was writing it. Did she have that foresight or did she just like the color red? I wonder, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't believe Charlotte Bronte had a red room at the Haworth Parsonage. No, no. <laughs> But yeah, I think it's it's an interesting idea, and it certainly makes a great visual when it comes to the adaptations, to have that that feeling of anger in Jane visualized with her surroundings of red. So you know, it's 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 up to interpretation, definitely. And like you said, is it 
is it could it be like a womb? I don't know. Mrs. Reed infantilizing Jane, you know, wanting her to change. Because sure. I feel like you know conversion therapy. We know how well that works out, you know. Oh, but at the same time, it's like does she she just like if only you were like my kids? Yeah. You know what I would she still would she care a little bit more? So it's like stick her in the room, hope that. It's. I mean, I mean, punishment will get to her. Yeah, and she'll be a better child. We can just we can disclose to the listeners right now that you know Charlene and I have been married for three years. We've been together for longer than that. We do not have children, and no. so I wonder, you know, what does it come to when it comes to doing punishment for kids? Sometimes you don't know, like what's going to be the best thing, especially when it's not your child. This is a this is a niece of yours, yeah. right? And we, you just you just alluded to it a second ago that even your mother thought the best way to punish them for something one of them did is to punish all of them and hope that they'll they'll get together and be like hey don't do that because uh, now we all have to face the well the now, wrath. That, now that i'm older i think that also my mom was just tired and she didn't want to, have to figure <laughs> out our, who's to blame she just punish everybody and be done <laughs> i wonder and i wonder that's what mrs reed is dealing with now granted i mean she's got a big old house yeah she's got three kids you know she's got a, a son who just doesn't like i said she loves the son the son is kind of like embarrassed by the mom you know i mean i know she has help but she also doesn't have a husband but she her husband is deceased Mm -hmm. and so i think maybe that's one of those situations where again she's just she's a little bit fed up because now there's a fourth kid in the house she just doesn't want to have to deal with jane so i'll just lock her up and try to forget about her for a little bit (laughs) maybe maybe and then that leads me to the the, the one more question i wanted to have before we move on which was Mm -hmm. You know, like regardless of the morbid quality of, of being in a room where somebody had died, like we've established that the red room is supposedly where Miss, Mr. Reed had, had bre- breathed his last breath. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was going to ask you, could you handle spending time in a room like that that was decorated and designed as it was in this chapter? Like, you know, would your mind instantly wander? Because, you know, there's no there's no phones there's no television. You're just in this room. Oh. If you can get past, like I said, get past the morbidness of it. That's some, I don't think I think I could get over that. We've been to museums. We've been to houses where I'm sure somebody died in the room, and you're like, okay, oh, yeah. it's fine. I know that some that brings down the price of when you resell certain <laughs> houses on the market. Yes, but not in this market. But well, yes. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm only going to hurry up and die in one of these houses that Charlene and I are trying to buy. Uh, but like, yeah, like, could you handle living in that room or having to stay in that room? Because I think she mentions there's no, no books, right? Right. There's just this giant mirror yes. that just, that could make things a little bit more eerie, more gothic, eerie. Yes. if you will. But could you deal with that? Well, I feel like I would kind of enjoy if it was a really nice room. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think I would be that bothered by it. I could just, you know, they have a nice big bed you can lie down in. You know, Jane likes solitude sometimes, so mm. as I do, so it would be maybe nice. I don't know if she had a light in that room, so maybe that would be really creepy. Uh, it was just got darker and candles darker. Candles, maybe, yeah. and stuff. I wouldn't like to be in a dark room all by myself, probably. Wow. But this, but I, and I don't think uh, Charlotte Bronte established whether or not Jane likes naps as much as you do. <laughs> So, I mean, just this giant bed. Oh, I just project that on Jane. I'm sure yeah. she loves naps. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, it's, like I said, the, the, there, there's a line, there's a quote that I wanted to pull up that where the way that Jane describes the Red Room with, because I guess she's been locked inside, and she says, no jail was ever more secure. Mm. And so you're like, does it feel like a jail cell? I mean, it's the room is not tiny, but it's also not expansive, right? Yes. Like, she's there's a bed and there's a mirror, but, yeah. you know... Other than sleeping, if you if you were wide awake, 
yeah. you have to look out the window. I don't know. That, that's that's <laughs> yeah. So maybe that it's it's like it's like being in solitary confinement. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, so. it's not pleasant. I'm sure. Yeah, but anyway. All right. Well, that was that was. I just dropped a quote, and so I know we like to do on this show. Uh, we can we like to end the episodes by bringing up a meaningful passage or quote from the book mm-hmm. as well. And if you don't mind, Charlene, I was actually going to start with mine. Sure. Superstition was with me at that moment, but it was not yet her hour for complete victory. And I like that quote a lot because I feel like it's as if Jane is having an anxiety attack in a way. Mm. And I say that as somebody who has experienced them and I know how crippling they can be. Um, But what I liked is that she's strong enough at age 10 Mm -hmm. to know that the fear around her is irrational. Yes. You know, like she attempts to explain what caught there's a, she mentions that there's a light that comes through the room and that's where she's like oh my god is this is this the ghost of mr reed right. coming back but yet when she first describes it she dis- she tries to explain what it is rationally she's like oh it must have been a lantern from the outside like she doesn't immediately she doesn't immediately oh. go to the by saying it's a it's a spirit she says this light came through i'm sure it was a lantern i'm sure it was somebody passing outside but i think in a way I believe it could be a ghost. I think in the book, Jane is retrospectively saying that she believes that it was just someone crossing the lawn with a lantern. So I don't know if she, as a child, was thinking that. Mm. But it's interesting because at least, you know, when you're reading it, Mm -hmm. like, why would you not, why would the author not bring that up after the fact? Like, when she introduces the idea of this light in the room, like, it's almost like Charlotte Bronte wants to tell you the first thing. Okay, I know it's I know it's not real, but mm-hmm. you would. But we talked about this gothic, the idea of a gothic romance, or at least you know a gothic literature. Mm-hmm. Why would you not just be like, oh my god, there's a ghost in the room? Sure. Because why would you not say that first and then say, you know, now that I look back as an adult, it probably wasn't that, you know. But well, it I seems think it's like the element of realism that Charlotte Bronte is still trying to keep to the story, as as Jane is a rational person too, mm-hmm. like you said, that she is thinking things rationally. So we're highlighting that Jane is a very level-headed person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know children do have an imagination that can tend to run wild, mm-hmm. and so I think that's what we, I like about these first couple of chapters, especially this chapter, is that that line between fantasy and reality is slightly blurred. Blurred, yes. you know. You know, there's a great quote as well. I almost had this quote as my as oh, my quote yes. as well. You know, when she's looking into the mirror, she says, "Quote: All looked colder and darker in that visionary hollow than in reality." Right. So it's like again, she she knows, unless it's another one of those retrospective quotes, no. <laughs> where it's like little ten year old girl is not she's not totally freaked out. I mean, she's mm-hmm. enough to where she's gonna scream and try to get help. Yes. But she also she's also trying to kind of convince herself that it's not real and she has to kind of get over it. And to be honest with you, and I say this from experience, mm-hmm. that is how you come to grips with yeah. an anxiety attack. Right. Is that you have to kind of tell yourself it's it's okay. You're not. Mm-hmm. You're. This is not as serious as you think it is and so again that's what i like that that dichotomy in jane and that's what kind of adds to her personality to give her more depth yes that's a great point so my quote recalls jane's anger at the injustice of her situation and it's i dared commit no fault i strove to fulfill every duty and i was termed naughty and tiresome sullen and sneaking from morning to noon and from noon to night But I, who dared commit no fault, who strove to fulfill every duty, I was termed naughty and sneaking from morning to noon and from noon to night. 
And it just brings up this description of Jane that's so alien to the reader of her as naughty, sullen, sneaky. Like she's, all of these things are not true about her. And as we learn more about Jane, we are aware of that this is just an inaccurate portrait of her and how unfair it is for her to be seen like this. I just think it's such a, a great encapsulation of that. Yeah, I think we kind of alluded to that in the first chapter as well. Like Jane seems to be so much more concerned with what other people think of her. Mm-hmm. And she wants to make sure that she's yeah judged fairly, which yes. again, I'm sure all 10-year-olds probably do. Yes. But she's, I don't know, there's, it's a, there's a greater sense of it. I get from this book when I read it, yeah. Yeah, I I agree. So I think that concludes our discussion of Chapter 2 of Jane Eyre. Thank you for listening. As we are a new podcast, we would love to get the word out and have more people join us in celebrating this novel. So please subscribe and review us on your preferred podcast platform and tell your friends. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at airguide. That's E-Y-R-E. And if you want to hear more from me, I also host my own podcast called Out of Touchstone, where my good friend Chad and I discuss all the films that Disney produced for their Touchstone Pictures label. You can also find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. Thank you, and farewell for the present. Mm-hmm.